Verse 14 says, Now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, How does this man know letters, having never studied? Jesus answered and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Did not Moses give you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The people answered Jesus and said, Look, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you. And Father, we <clears throat> just humbly pause and, and just ask now for the assistance of your Holy Spirit we realize, Lord, that this just isn't information like any other book historically or some biography, that this is your living and inspired word that your spirit breathed out. So we humbly ask that your Holy Spirit now be our interpreter and our instructor and the one who would take the word of God and speak it in a personal and direct way to our hearts. Lord, let us not hear wise or persuasive words of a man. We want that experience, the demonstration of your spirit and power speaking to our hearts from the word of God this morning. Bless your word. We ask in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen, amen. amen. You may be seated. You know, I think it's a good question for us to ask in our lives on occasion is, do we want to be religious or do we really want to be right with God? And there's a vast difference between the two. Whether you are yet a Christian or not, I think that's something we have to evaluate our hearts regarding on occasion. Because sadly, sometimes, as people, we can be more interested in sort of maintaining a religious lifestyle and even retaining maybe the appearance or image of spirituality than we actually are concerned about really being right with God. And being in a right relationship with God. And those two things are, are vastly different. And there's something, let's be very honest, somewhat almost appealing about a lifestyle maybe that includes some religious activities and some spiritual beliefs and uh, maintaining some image of spirituality about ourselves because it sort of makes us feel good about ourselves that we at least have some moral ideals and it even quite frankly even feeds kind of our human ego a little bit that we have this spiritual image among other people and and that can somewhat be a trap because feeling self-righteous about who you are and actually being right with God are vastly different things. Uh, the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 8 that Peter there said this to a rather spiritual man. Peter declared these words by the inspiration of the Spirit to a spiritual man. He said, your heart is not right in the sight of God. Your heart is not right in the sight of God. And that's really, I think, what we find happening here now in John chapter 7 as Jesus is dialoguing with the people here at the feast and the religious leaders, the religious Jews of this day. At this point, there's their opposition, their rejection of Jesus is beginning to reach a real high point. Now the opposition against Christ is beginning to grow. They love their religious routines, but their hearts were not right in the sight of God. Their hearts were not right toward God because Jesus was God in the flesh. And today, may our time in this passage sort of challenge our hearts maybe to be less interested 
in trying to be religious in our lifestyle and maintain a spiritual image, but that our greater desire would be, you know what? I just want to be right with God. I just want to know that I'm right with God. Not that I know how to pretend to be a Christian or push all the little Christian buttons and levers and wear the t-shirts and say the right cliche phrases, but I want to know, God, am I right with you? Am I in a right relationship with you where I'm at right now in my journey? The background of what we're looking at, because it's critical as we begin verse 14. Remember, we're six months now, somewhere in that time frame, prior to the crucifixion of Christ. So there's a short window before Jesus will be crucified at this point. And because Jesus has openly claimed that he is God and he's violated the religious traditions of the day, and his popularity has grown, these things have contributed to a great amount of hatred and jealousy increasing in the hearts of the religious Jews towards Jesus at this time. Because he's kind of threatening the religious establishment of the day. He's weakening their power, if you would. And because of that, the Bible's told us a few times now that they're actually seeking to kill Jesus. We've read that a few times just in John's gospel already. The feast of the tabernacles we saw last week is now at hand. And Jesus, knowing that they are searching for him, wanting to actually kill him and put him to death, it tells us that when the crowds went up to Jerusalem for the feast, Jesus waited for a while. He kind of hung back for a bit, didn't go up with the public crowds and everyone else. But rather he waits, he eventually goes up quietly by himself in sort of a less public fashion avoiding public attention but he ultimately goes up and the religious leaders were expecting jesus's attention attendance there so they're looking for jesus we saw at the end of our study last week that the jews were seeking jesus saying where is he where is he they're looking for him and their interest in jesus tells us then in verse 12 that there began to be a bunch of complaining and divided opinions because some people were saying he's a good man he teaches good things and he does good things to help people and others were saying no this is all sleight of hand stuff that guy's just a deceiver he's doing trickery and there's this divided opinion and stir now of conversation there among jerusalem in the crowds about who jesus is that brings us now to verse 14 where we pick it up in verse 14 it says look now about the middle of the feast halfway through it jesus then went up into the temple area and it says he taught the people so when jesus felt the timing was right he then appears openly in public. He's not kind of being covert anymore. He begins now to teach among the crowds as he had done many times before. And the Feast of Tabernacles, which this is a reference to here, lasted eight days in total. And it says here in verse 14, about midway now through that eight-day celebration of tabernacles, Jesus does what is a very common practice there in the temple area in Jerusalem for rabbis or spiritual teachers, which Jesus was. It was customary for rabbis or spiritual teachers to go into the temple area and position themselves there usually on the large stone steps leading up to the temple as they would begin to speak and teach then crowds of people would assemble around them and come over and listen to what they were saying and as jesus taught it always caused a very strong response and reaction among the people look at verse 15 it tells us that it says as jesus taught verse 15 it says and the jews marveled that word marveled means 
astonished. Your translation may say amazed. The idea is that as he taught, the people were sort of left wondering, kind of just going, wow, wow. I mean, this is so different than anything we've ever heard before when someone would teach and speak as a spiritual teacher. When Jesus spoke, his words were very simple, but yet they were so profound at the same time. There was a spiritual anointing as he spoke to the people. The Bible says that people were astonished at the gracious words that proceeded out of his mouth, how the favor of God was upon his speech as he spoke, and how he spoke as one with divine authority. His teaching was so different in its power and in its insight and its ability to just really have a spiritual impact. It caused people to marvel, especially because he was not trained in the ways of formal Judaism as other teachers were. Look as verse 15 goes on. It says, They marveled, saying, How does this man know letters? The idea is the letter of the law, having never studied. Now, the New American translation, I think, captures the idea clearly here. It renders this section. How has this man become so learned, having never been educated? Another translation renders this section. How does he know so much when he hasn't studied everything that we've studied? That's the religious leaders saying that. Now, keep in mind, just like in today's day with Bible schools and seminaries and so forth, there were official formal, way, formal ways that you could be educated theologically where you could learn the scriptures and be taught by famous rabbis. There were rabbinic schools and training processes to be mentored and instructed and groomed to be a rabbi or a spiritual teacher in that day. And participation in those organized theological systems was what, from their perspective, credentialed someone to be a teacher or gave them the authority to instruct people spiritually. So Jesus, as a man keep in mind now, comes on the scene as this prophet, as this teacher, and begins to speak openly about the ways of God and the kingdom of God and regarding the Old Testament scriptures to the people. And Jesus has not been formally educated in their rabbinic schools. Jesus has not gone up to Jerusalem and subjected himself to this training under famous rabbis of the day and yet, though he did not do that, when they listened to Jesus speak, his teaching was so astonishing. It was so potent in its effect. It was something that was you know, profound, in some ways more profound than the trained, established religious leaders in that day. And there's this quandary in their mind because as they listen to Jesus, they think he knows the scriptures so well. And he knows the ways of God so well. And, and he has this incredible ability to interpret and expound what the scriptures mean and to explain them. So they're scratching their heads saying, how could this man who is just a simple carpenter? That's what we knew. Him, he just, just was a simple carpenter. He's not educated. He's not formally trained, having never studied in the ways. That, how, how has he, without going to our rabbinic schools of theology, how does he know the letter of the law so well? How does he know the word of God so proficiently and communicate it so helpfully? And I'll tell you, we look at the life of Jesus here as a man and his ministry, his public ministry, and it's great encouragement that having formal education and training is not, listen, essential to serving God effectively and to serving God fruitfully. Granted, listen, I'm not saying that there's anything 
unvaluable or, or, or less important about becoming trained spiritually, going to a Bible school, becoming well-prepared and equipped. I think preparation is an important part of God's plan and purposes. And I think it can be an addendum to the call of God upon a person's life. That being said, formal training or education is not essential to serving God or being effective and useful for God. A life dedicated to the informal study of the word of God, where you read it and study it and perhaps are taught by someone else in an informal manner. And then the anointing of the spirit coupled with a good knowledge of the word of God sometimes can be just as or if not more, I'll go so far to say, more effective than some who are trained in religious establishments who perhaps don't even have the call of God and they know a whole lot of things about theology, but they don't even teach the word of God itself. And so Jesus here sets this beautiful precedent here for being someone who astonished the people. How can this man know so much spiritually having never been educated as we were? Well, verse 16, Jesus hears their question and answers and says to them, here's why. My doctrine, he says is not mine but his who sent me so jesus indicates notice not that he was self-taught he's not a self-proclaimed minister he's not a self-proclaimed but he says i'm it's not that i'm self-taught i'm divinely instructed I've been divinely instructed by my Father in heaven through the ongoing relationship Jesus had with his Father in heaven. That was how he received the words to speak. That was how he received the doctrine that he gave forth from the people. He says there, my doctrine, the idea is my teaching, Jesus says, it's not mine. It's not of human origin. It's not just clever ideas and thoughts of men that he heard other rabbis speak. And so he passed along some ideas that he gleaned from research. He says, my teaching instead, it comes from him who sent me from heaven itself. It's doctrine that comes from God as God, the father and God, the son communicated with one another. No wonder. Could you agree? No wonder Jesus's teaching was so accurate spiritually. No wonder it was so impacting. No wonder it was so insightful. Because listen, it was not just religious information. It was revelation from God. That's why the truth when it came forth, that's why the teaching when it came forth about the word of God and the things of God had such an impact in the hearers and the hearts of the people. Because it wasn't just some you know, fine-sounding order passing along religious information. It was revelatory. It was coming from the heart of God through the life of an individual on earth who was speaking to the ears and the hearts of men. And it was revelation from God. And when people heard Jesus speak, they were actually hearing the voice of God as he taught people. And so therefore it was impacting when they heard it. Verse 17, Jesus goes on to say, and if anyone wills to do his will, that is the father's will who had sent him, he shall know, discern or sense concerning this doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. So notice Jesus here indicates in verse 17, and this is an important spiritual principle, that a desire to obey God a desire to do the will of God, Jesus shows here, will be rewarded with an ability to have greater spiritual understanding in the things of God. This is what Jesus is saying here in verse 17. If anyone is willing to do his will, that is God's will, if anyone wants to obey God, Jesus says, 
then that person will be able to know or discern the source of where my teaching is coming from. There'll be a sense of spiritual understanding to discern that that doctrine and that word was coming from God. What Jesus is trying to teach them is that their interest in obeying God's voice, wanting to do his will, to do the will of God, their interest in wanting to obey God's voice and follow his will would help them discern what God was actually saying more clearly. It give them a greater perception spiritually in their senses. He's indicating that a willingness and desire to obey God and his will is something that results from God's perspective in a heart that has greater spiritual understanding. This is an important spiritual principle. A desire to obey God will have direct connection to your spiritual understanding. Let me say that again. A desire to obey God will have a direct connection to your spiritual understanding. These two go hand in hand is what Jesus is saying. For example, if we are not obeying what God has already shown us in his word, if we're not interested in obeying the truth of scripture, then why really should God give us new information? Why should God give us greater spiritual understanding if we don't walk in the light that God has already given to us in his word? What's the need of that? All it does is give you a bigger spiritual head. It just makes you more puffed up with greater spiritual knowledge and makes you sometimes deceptively feel even more spiritual. God first wants us to obey and put into practice what we know. If we don't obey what God said, there's no need for new information. This is what Jesus is trying to convey here because Jesus understands the heart of human nature. And he knows that honestly, some people only want more spiritual knowledge. They just want a greater Bible understanding. There are some people who don't want to live out and obey what God shows them in his word. And sometimes learning God's word is something with some people where where the mindset is this. They want to learn God's word and hear what it says and then decide if they want to obey it. That's backwards, can I say? It should say, this is the word of God. This is the authority of every matter in faith and practice. And whatever this says, it's right and I'm wrong. Whatever this says, it's right and the world is wrong. Whatever it says, it's right and everybody else's opinion and ideas it's all wrong this is right and I will obey what this says and when you say this is right and so I'm going to read it and then accept it and obey it that's a good thing but when you say I'm going to read this and then decide if I want to obey it if I want to believe it well that's a very dangerous thing and when a person reads and studies the Bible listen because many do to feel spiritual that's not a healthy thing But there are individuals who read the Bible and study the Bible because it makes them feel more spiritual. I attend three Bible studies a week. I read the Bible. I can quote it backwards and forward. Do you obey the Bible? I'd rather you read one verse and obey it than read 10 chapters a day and ignore it. And I think God would too. This is a very important thing. We have to be sensitive to this. Because if we're not obeying what the scripture says, we may find at times our spiritual understanding grows dull because we're not obeying the revelation of what God's given to us. And so there's a dullness. Now, on the other hand, Jesus is saying here in verse 17, when God sees a heart that wants to learn and wants to obey, when God sees a heart that wants to do his will, God rewards that desire to want to obey him with greater spiritual insight. 
This is a spiritual principle. A heart that wants to know God's will will be someone with deeper spiritual insight. A heart that wants to do God's will, that wants to obey God, will be a heart that receives greater and deeper spiritual insight. Jesus goes on, verse 18, to say, He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. So again, the idea of a person is speaking things just from their own self. Jesus says they're more than likely a teacher just looking to get personal advantage or maybe promote themselves or be admired or benefit if they speak of their own. They're just seeking their own glory. But he goes on, verse 18, he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him, seeking the glory of God, he is true and no unrighteousness is in him. So here Jesus shows the teacher who seeks the glory of God is a true or a sincere teacher, Jesus says, who has a pure motivation. And Jesus uses himself here now as the example of a true teacher spiritually and what a true teacher spiritually should be like using his life as an example. Two things he points out, a true teacher spiritually using himself as an example, she sa he says, is someone, number one, who seeks the glory of God. That was the way Jesus taught. Jesus taught in a way whereby he glorified and honored God in how he spoke. And he taught in a way whereby his chief agenda was to lead people to glorify God in their lives. And so Jesus says this is what a true and sincere spiritual teacher should do as well. They should be someone who seeks the glory of God in their teaching. That is, they speak and they communicate in a way to people whereby their desire is not to impress people, but to glorify God in their speech and to communicate in a way whereby the end result of what they teach, it would lead people not to be impressed with them, but it would lead people to live lives that glorify God. That is the way they teach and what they teach and how they communicate, the end result, the fruit of their teaching will lead people to want to worship God and honor God and glorify God and say, I want to live to glorify God. That that would be the fruit of that. Jesus says, this is how I taught. He says, secondly, as well, that a true spiritual teacher should be someone who has no unrighteousness in him. The idea there is a, a pure, a holy life that aligns with their teaching spiritually. Now, for Jesus... In the most literal sense, this was true. Jesus here again makes a claim to, in a sense, a sinless life, that there was no unrighteousness in him. And that was true of Jesus Christ. He had absolutely no sin in him. He never committed any sin. And that was necessary for him to, to be our savior. Now, certainly today, there will never be any human teacher, spiritually, pastor or whoever, that is going to be like Jesus, sinless and without flaws. However, that being said, I think as teachers of the word of God, and if we're going to share spiritual truth in some capacity, we should have a life that aligns with the word of God. We should have a lifestyle that matches up with what we're sharing with people. We should not be living the ideas in compromise or contradiction to what we're teaching in the word of God or what the word of God says. What we tell others should be consistent with what they can see how we're living ourselves. And this is important. If you're someone who shares the word of God in a small Bible study or, or, or in a large capacity, that your life would match your teaching, that there would be consistency there, 
that you would be teaching things that you're living out yourself and there wouldn't be compromise or contradiction. And Jesus uses his life as the great example of this thing. Verse 19, he then says, did not Moses give you the law? He says, yet look what he says. None of you keeps the law. You don't obey it. Then he says, why do you seek to kill me? So it starts to get a little intense here now in the conversation. Jesus here, verse 19, indicates their guilt of, as I said at the beginning, loving their religious system more than actually being right with God relationally. And this is where Jesus is going now. The people highly esteemed Moses, as Jesus mentions there, verse 19, as their prized spiritual leader. We have Moses and we've received the Mosaic law. And and the Jews in that day, they felt righteous because they were possessors of the law of God. They knew intellectually what the law said and felt spiritual because simply they were the stewards and guardians of the word of God. Jesus, however, here exposes their grievous error. He says, but no one's obeying the law of God. No one's following what it says. Look what he says there, verse 19. He says, you have the law, yet none of you keeps the law. In other words, Jesus is indicating there, you have the Bible and you read the Bible, yet why don't you obey the Bible? You have it, you read it, you study it, But he says something's grievously wrong when you read it, have it, and study it, but you don't obey what it says. You don't obey what the Bible says. And this is something that's a contradiction from the perspective of God. They loved upholding their religious lifestyle, having their image of spirituality as a person or people, but they were not right with God relationally. They had a spiritual image, but they weren't right with God in their hearts. And Jesus here was concerned about this. One of the greatest indications is look at it there, verse 19. How do you know if somebody's not right with God? Well, they want to kill Jesus. They want to eliminate the presence of God. We're religious, but we don't want God in our lives. We're religious, but we don't want to obey the Bible. We're spiritual, but we don't want to follow the scripture. And Jesus says, your heart is not right with God. He says, why do you want to kill me? Because they're not right with God. They want to destroy and remove the presence and the very voice of God in their lives. And I have to ask today as we search the scriptures, could it be possible that you could be guilty of the exact same error of these people? Could it be possible today that you're maintaining all the practices and routines of your religious lifestyle that you've learned well and developed and maybe you're still maintaining a spiritual image but yet your heart's not right with God this morning and you know how to push the buttons and say the right things and you come and attend and open your Bible still and maybe even do all the little spiritual religious routines that we do but the reality is you're not right with God in your heart There are things in your life that aren't right with God. Look, here in Jesus' words are two indicators of when our heart isn't right with God. The first one I would say is this. You know what the word of God says in some area and you're not obeying it. Jesus says you have the law, but you don't keep it. I'll tell you one way you can tell real quick if you're not right with God this morning is you know what the word of God says in regards to some area, but you're not obeying it. You're disregarding it and you're making justifications and reasons for it. You're not right in your heart with God if that's the case because this is God's word. And another way that we can tell that we're not right with God like these people 
is when we start trying to ignore or silence the voice of the Lord. They wanted to kill Jesus. Why? Because they didn't want to hear what the voice of the Lord was saying. And when you're someone who finds yourself starting to at some point, you're always trying to silence the voice of the Lord because you don't want the conviction that comes maybe with the voice of the Lord or the truth. That's not a good thing. That's an indication that the heart has shifted off course somewhat. Look how Jesus and their conversation goes on. Verse 20, the people hearing this didn't take too kindly to it. They answered and said to him, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? So they not only deny the fact that they want to put Jesus to death, which was true, he knew their hearts. But worse than that, look at this here. They actually accused the very son of God of being a man who's demon possessed. That's pretty bad, I would say. This is the son of God. And Jesus here says, I know that you want to kill me. We don't want to kill you. You're demon possessed. Now, again, as we look at this, this is further indication of when a heart's not in right relationship with God. A few other things, take note. They're denying what's true and what's really going on in their lives because they do want to kill Jesus, but they're denying what's really true in their hearts. And they're denying what's really going on in their lives. And I can tell you one of the ways we can know when we're not right with God is when you start denying what's really going on in your life. Whether you're lying about it to other people publicly, but you know what's going on privately in your life just to keep up your image. Or whether somebody challenges you and says, hey, and and like Jesus, he confronted what was going on in the heart. That's not true. When we're denying what's really going on inside of us, our heart is not in the right place because God wants truth in the inward parts and that we would live openly and honestly. Secondly, notice as well, another thing I can point out that shows they're not right with God is they get very angry and upset when Jesus challenges them regarding the error in their lives. He's challenging their error and and, and right away they take offense to it. We're not trying to kill you. You're demon-possessed. Tell me that doesn't happen on occasion where your heart's not in the right place and God uses somebody, the voice of Jesus comes through your friend or relative or a fellow Christian and they try and talk about something and right away you, the hair goes up and you take offense to it. Why do we get so irritated when conviction comes? Usually because our heart's not right. That's where that anger comes when somebody tries to call us into question regarding to maybe something is going on and again, they have a wrong perception towards the Lord here look at verse 21 we go on it says Jesus answered and said to them I did one work and you all marvel Moses therefore gave you circumcision not that it's from Moses but from the fathers originally from Abraham and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath if a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses should not be broken are you angry he says with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath So Jesus here in verse 21 to 23, he gets really right to the root issue now of what he knew was their real beef with him. He mentions it there in verse 23. He says, you're angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath. He's referring to John chapter five. Remember the story where Jesus healed the paralyzed man, told him to pick up his mat and walk and a miracle happened and this man walked off carrying his mat And Jesus is referring to how they got so incensed over that because what they perceived as a violation of their traditional religious interpretation of the Sabbath day of rest, at that moment it created such anger and bitterness towards Jesus they could not get beyond it. 
and it just festered and grew in their hearts and they began to wear, if you would, follow me, rose-colored glasses towards Jesus. So from that point on, once they got angry and offended by Jesus' violation of their perception of the Sabbath, everything Jesus said and everything that Jesus did from that point forward, they saw through a shaded lens. And this is what happens when somebody's heart's not right. It's like putting a pair of sunglasses on and then everything from that point forward, you see it through a shaded lens. And this is what was happening between them and Jesus. So Jesus here, he tries to reason with them in verses 21 through 23. And basically what he is saying is, look, under Mosaic law, you receive circumcision as a part of the Mosaic law. On the eighth day, God instructed they were to circumcise a male child as a covenant sign of being the people of God. And the purpose of that was the cutting away of the flesh to signify that they were a people who did not live after the fleshly impulses, but they lived instead after a higher thing, after the spirit of God's direction in their life. Jesus mentions here how they did this with such strict adherence to keep the Mosaic law and honor God that even, listen, even if a child's eighth day after birth, when circumcision was to happen, happened on the Sabbath day, they would still do the work and procedure of circumcising that child on the Sabbath so they didn't break the law of Moses. Now, Jesus here is trying to say, wait a minute, you still perform the work of circumcision even if it falls on the Sabbath day, the eighth day, which is technically a work. That's why he says, verse 23, if a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, which was a procedure or work, so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me, he says, because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? So Jesus is just trying to be reasonable with them to show them how unreasonable they're being. He says, how is it okay that you can perform a work procedure on the Sabbath day to not break one part of the Mosaic law, but yet you're upset with me and angry because I performed a miraculous work of God to graciously heal a suffering man on the same Sabbath day? He's saying, think about this. It's okay for you to do something on the Sabbath day to cause hurt to someone, because circumcision isn't pleasant. He says, yet you're angry with me because I helped someone on the Sabbath? Because I healed someone on the Sabbath? What he's trying to do here is to reveal that their reasoning process and their perspective on the matter was very flawed. It was very distorted. They were being utterly hypocritical in the thing they were so upset about. They were being wrongly judgmental in the whole matter. Why? Because their hearts were not right with God personally. And so their perspective was flawed. They were making a wrong judgment. And, and I have to say this. Isn't it interesting how Jesus here, take note, he cuts through all the symptomatic stuff on the surface and he goes right to the heart of the issue of what he knew was going on in the situation and with these people here and what they're struggling with. He, he says there in verse 23, what's really going on, let's just be honest, he says here. What's really going on, he says, that's caused your heart to be where it is, is you're just angry because, and, and I think sometimes the Lord does this, what's really going on here? Let's cut through all the symptomatic stuff. What's really going on here is you're just angry because this didn't work out the way you wanted it to or you didn't get what you wanted in a situation, or, or, or your expectation wasn't met, or sometimes Jesus says to us today, even as perhaps he says to them, 
you're just angry at me. And that's what's going on in this situation. You're angry at God. And sometimes Jesus says to us, what's really going on here, all this tension, all this stuff, is you're angry with the Lord. You're angry with me because I didn't do what you wanted. Or, and, and, and I just love how Jesus so graciously goes right to the heart of the issue. And he says, look, let's set aside the symptoms. Let's deal with the heart of the problem because the heart of the problem, listen, is always the problem of the heart in every situation. And so Jesus here brings to the surface how they were angry at him because of one event that happened. And when someone's heart is in a wrong place, look at this, watch it. It affects their judgment and their perspective of things. That's why Jesus says, verse 24, do not judge, he says to them, according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. So Jesus cautions against evaluating and deciding things based on what? A surface viewpoint. On a perspective that only relies on human reasoning, because that approach with surface viewpoint and human reasoning, that approach will always lead to unrighteous judgments. We'll make evaluations that are erroneous because whether it's a spiritual matter or our evaluation of a person or a situation, we will always be off target if we do that. They didn't see in Jesus what they expected from him. They didn't understand who Jesus was. They didn't understand what God was doing. And as a result, what happened? They got quickly offended at Jesus and it sunk a root of bitterness down into their heart and they never took the time to seek God for greater understanding and why has this happened and what is going on so that they could make a right judgment. Instead, they just took the exit ramp which said bad attitude and their heart got off track and their heart stood off track and they misjudged Jesus. They misjudged what God was doing and sadly, they rejected and cast aside what could have been a very wonderful thing of God in their lives. So sad. And Jesus shows here in verse 24, as it comes to making judgments and evaluations, what we should not do and what we should do. Because we're going to make evaluations of people and situations. Jesus says, first of all, here's what not to do. Don't judge according to appearance. Don't judge according to appearance. In other words, he's saying, don't use a superficial viewpoint when you make judgments and evaluations. Because listen, just because something looks a certain way doesn't mean that that's true. Just because someone looks a certain way does not necessarily mean that's so. We need to be careful of making quick, hasty evaluations that we just instantly assume that somehow perception is reality. False. Jesus tells us that we live by faith and not by sight. Perception is not reality. Perception is wrong. That's why the devil deceives people. Because the devil's a deceiver. Perception is not reality. Look further. We must be careful. God says, man looks on the outward appearance, but I look on the heart, God says. So if you want to look the way I look, God says, you've got to look below the surface. Be careful in this area. How something appears is not a safe way to make a good judgment. Jesus says, rather judge or evaluate, look what he says, with righteous judgment. That is by seeking God for clarity and understanding from his viewpoint. Why? Because God sees all the details. God knows all the facts. God knows what's going on in hearts and minds. And, and God sees every element of what's taken place. And therefore, because God knows all the details, his spirit can help us to make a righteous judgment about something. 
to make a righteous determination and evaluation. What does that look like practically? How do we make a righteous evaluation about a person or matter? Well, by doing things like spending time in prayer first and seeking the word of God for its counsel maybe that God would want to give to us by having open communication with people and dialogue about stuff and talking through things and and waiting on the Lord to reveal what may or may not be true and let God validate or in a sense disprove what may be going on with thoughts or perceptions in our eyes or minds. Let's go on, verse 25. It says there that now some of them from Jerusalem said, is this not he they seek to kill? But look, he speaks boldly, they say, and no one says anything to him. Do the rulers know that this is truly the Christ? So the people are becoming perplexed why the religious leaders aren't doing what? Seizing Jesus and just killing him. They say here, wait a minute. Isn't this the guy they want to kill? If this is the guy they want to kill and everybody knows they want to kill him, how come they're letting him talk openly here in the temple and nobody's refraining him? Why is nobody stopping him here? They say this doesn't make sense. That's why they say verse 26 there. Uh, they said, do the rulers truly know indeed that this is the Christ? In other words, maybe they really do know this is the Messiah and the Christ. And for some reason, they're not telling us. So they're trying to figure this out as they're working through this here. They say, verse 27, however, we know where this man is from. But when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. So the people are trying to figure out this stir over Jesus and who he was. They say, we know where this guy's from. He's a man from Nazareth. His family came from there. It was where he was raised. And when the Christ comes, the Messiah, they say, no one will know where he is from. Now, in a sense, that's not technically true because the Old Testament scripture prophesied that the Messiah would be sent from God, number one, which Jesus has been claiming, and number two, that he would be born in Bethlehem and raised in Nazareth, which Jesus was as well. So in a sense, their judgment is just off here. They're not perceiving who Jesus is. Verse 28 says, Jesus then cried out as he taught in the temple saying, you both know me and you know where I am from. Now, he could be saying that literally. I'm not certain here. He could be saying literally, you know me. I, I, you know where I'm from, from Nazareth, where my family was raised. But I think verse 28, Jesus also could be here indicating that he was aware that their hearts inwardly knew the truth about him, but yet they were just suppressing the truth and not wanting to admit in a sense that perhaps verse 28, Jesus is saying there to them, you know I'm the son of God and you know that I'm the Messiah and you know that I've been sent from the Father. You're aware of that. You're just struggling with admitting that and acknowledging that because of the feelings that you have towards me. And it could be Jesus is intimating that. He says, verse 28, and I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know yet, Jesus says, but I know him for I am from him and he sent me. Now we've seen verses like this before. Again, Jesus reiterates as many times before that he knows God the Father directly. Again, Jesus makes a, a, a proclamation of his deity here. How he was sent from dwelling in heaven there with the Father and has now come to earth. And he's reminding them again, as he said before, that he was God's representative of the Trinity who came to live among them, to dwell in their midst. And therefore, in essence, he's saying to know me is to know God directly. 
Because he says, I was sent from God. I know him personally, for I am from him, of him, and sent by him. Again, Jesus here is wanting them to realize, not only is he claiming equality with God, but that he is God's representative of the Trinity. And what the truth here being taught by Jesus is this, is God can only be known through Jesus. He can only be known directly through Jesus because he is the extension of God to this earth to reveal to us what God is like and that we might have right relationship with God. That's why 1 Timothy 2 says there's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. He is the revelation of God. He is the, the bridge that connects humanity to God. Well, you know when he says this, they never like it. Verse 30, therefore they sought to take him. Look at it. But no one laid a hand on him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come because God's timing was not right. The efforts of men, even if their hearts were in a wrong place, could not thwart the plan and the will of God because Jesus' hour to die was not yet. And many of the people believed in him, verse 31 says. And when the Christ comes, they said, will he do more signs than these which this man has done? So I want you to notice exposure to Jesus and his power and his teaching was making the crowd start to come to the conclusion this may indeed be the Christ here they begin to say wait a minute when the Christ comes could he possibly do more miracles and signs than this man has already done so they're beginning to come to this conclusion perhaps this is indeed the awaited Messiah and Christ that the scriptures promised would come for us and can I just say for all of us I think truthfully my own opinion I think it is hard to sincerely consider the life of Jesus Christ and not come to the conclusion that he is the Savior of the world, the Son of God, and the Lord of all. I think it's it's very difficult. You have to almost be dishonest with yourself to sincerely examine the life of Jesus and not come to the conclusion all the signs point to who he clearly and truly is. Verse 32 The Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning him. And then Pharisees, again, those chief priests, they sent to take him. And Jesus said, I shall be with you a little while longer. And then I go to him who sent me again back to heaven. You will seek me and not find me. And where I am, he says, you cannot come. So Jesus, of course, there speaking prophetically, as I said, of his upcoming return back to heaven, back with God the Father from where he once dwelt for all of eternity, that he was about to go back. Jesus would be with them, he says here, a little while longer that is on the earth as a man. Then he would be arrested. He would be crucified and die for the sins of the world in a substitutionary way. And then three days after he died, he would raise from the dead, living victoriously over the grave and the power of sin, And for about a month's time, Jesus would make appearances and show he was truly alive. And then he would ascend back into heaven. That's why Jesus says, then I go back to him who sent me. And since I'm going back to the eternal dimension, leaving earth, he says, that's why you will seek me and not find me. And where I am, he says, you cannot come because I'm going back to heaven. Now, look how this concludes. Verse 35, the Jews then said among themselves, hearing this, where does he intend to go? that we shall not find him. Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? Again, they're being cynical. What's he going to go hide out among the, the Greeks because the Jews have all rejected him? Verse 36, and what is this thing that he said, you will seek me 
and not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. So the religious Jews, again, refusing to believe in Jesus, having hatred for Jesus and because their heart's not right, are unable to understand the claims that Jesus are making here. I want you to see this before we close this morning and pay attention before we close out. The most concerning thing to me is not that they couldn't understand what Jesus was saying. The most concerning thing to me is that Jesus said they could not join him where he was. Where I am going, you cannot come. Whoa. It's one thing to not understand, but to hear Jesus say to them, where I'm going, heaven, you cannot come. What was the reason they could not come? One word, unbelief. Because they would not believe for who Jesus was for themselves and they would not receive and accept the one way of access into heaven, which is through a relationship with Jesus Christ, they were going to exclude themselves from being able to enter into heaven. Jesus is going to say in John 14, I am the way, the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Hey, this morning, listen, do you just want to be religious or do you want to be right with God? You can be as religious as you possibly can try to be, but you will never be right with God until you come to him through a relationship with his son, Jesus Christ, by putting your faith in Jesus and receiving Jesus as the savior of your sin and surrendering your life to him to follow him as the Lord of your life.